Well, thanks, Ron, and, and thank you, uh, Debbie and Shanine, uh, for, for, um, for coming up to sing for us and to, um, to worship in a, in a unique way. And for those of you who might have um, something you'd like to share, a special music, you can contact Pastor Alex or uh, Helena Knight and, uh, and have those discussions um, about, about what it is that you'd like to do. Uh, before we jump in one more time... Um, like to do this. In fact, this is, this is one of uh, the best things about uh, being a part of this church. And I'm not, and we've talked about this before, but um, we have a, a superior athlete in this congregation, in our church. And she's amazing. She's incredible. And Patty Massey, again, is wearing her hardware. Uh, she had a basketball championship. Yeah. Yeah. We're so proud of you, Patty, and uh, for those of you who, who don't know what, what she accomplished is that she is on the, uh, she just is on the state, the Montana State Special Olympics basketball team. Is that, is that correct? Okay, yep, that's right. And um, I, I, I'm a huge Chicago Bulls fan, and Michael Jordan retired at about 40 years old, and Patty is pushing 60. So you could say that her career is better than Michael Jordan's in, in a few ways. So uh, that's right. Yeah. Um, anyway, we're very proud of you, Patty, and we love to hear about your successes, and, and we love it. We love to see your hardware when you come. So uh, thank you for sharing with us. Um, okay, open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. We are in Acts chapter 3, we're kind of in the middle of our series on, uh, on we're calling it Here Comes the Bride, and um, Acts chapter 3 is where things kind of shift from, uh, we have uh, Christ coming in and giving his great commission, and then the ascension, and then uh, we have kind of the, the church, it's 120, they're waiting, and uh, they're waiting in Jerusalem, and then Pentecost comes, and a lot of incredible things happen on Pentecost, they get the Holy Spirit. And uh, they come out and uh, God performs a miracle through them by speaking in the languages that, that uh, people from all over the world could understand. Peter stands up and preaches just a powerful sermon. And at the end of that sermon, or on that day, 3,000 people are saved. And then we have, at the end of Acts chapter 2, uh, what the church looks like and, and how they're functioning and what they're devoted to and how uh, they love one another and are serving one another and just uh, some incredible things happening within the church and then uh, now it's shifted into chapter 3 of kind of specifically what's going on. And at the beginning of chapter 3, uh, Peter and John are coming into the temple. They're going to pray, and they meet a man who is always at the same gate called Beautiful, and he's always there begging. And again, uh, God performs a miracle through them to allow this man who has been um, disabled, never ever has he been able to walk in all of his life, uh, God performs a miracle through Peter and John. And, and uh, so now the man runs into the temple and he's, uh, he's just overjoyed and ecstatic about uh, being saved from his disability, but also being saved spiritually. And just all these, uh, just on that day, his life completely changed far greater than he ever could have imagined. And so um, he's running and he gets all this attention. People, people recognize him as the one who's always there begging and now he's leaping and, and overjoyed, and so um, they start to wonder, and they create a crowd, and that's where we're going to pick it up. And uh, we're going to read the, the, uh, this passage chunk by chunk. Sometimes we read it all in one uh, piece, but we're going to go chunk by chunk this morning. 
And, uh, and we're, but we're, what we're going to do is we're going to begin with 11 to 15. So Acts chapter 3, verse 11. We pick up the story. While he, this is the, the man who, who has been healed from his disability, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses." Okay, um, so again, this has to be chalked up as one of the least seeker-sensitive sermons in all of history, right? Uh, essentially, he says, you killed Jesus, you killed the one God sent, and so this is not seeker-sensitive whatsoever, right? We hear all this stuff about seeker-sensitive this and seeker-sensitive that, and you got to do this. That's not how Peter preached, okay? And so um, the Bible doesn't necessarily present that message, or present the message of seeker-sensitive anyway, anything, okay? So Peter comes out, and he, he preaches an incredibly powerful sermon, is what he does. Now, um, I have behind me, I think, a picture of the, the temple area. And um, last week, we showed a picture of where the beautiful gate was as you're entering really into the temple and uh, where the man was always begging. And what we know from this is that Peter is preaching at Solomon's portico. And I'm not sure if you can read this, but Solomon's portico is this wall here on the bottom. Okay, and so this whole thing, it's a wall, but then there's kind of a roof that came out that also served as a portico. And so um, the man who, who, was, um, who was saved, was saved spiritually and also saved from his disability, he always begged at the beautiful gate, which I don't know if you can see it, but that's number 11 right there. So in that inner wall, that is the beautiful gate where the man always was. And so after the miracle, he's, he's overjoyed and he's running and he's celebrating. This place is filled with thousands of people. It's the peak time for prayer. And, uh, and so Peter and John end up out in Solomon's portico. And again, you can't really see the roof, but it, it's up there. They, they marked it as white, but um, there's a roof there. And so Peter and John are there. The man is clinging to them. Probably he's just overjoyed and grateful and, and trying to find out more about um, well, I'm sure they're telling him about Jesus and, and all of those things, and he's trying to learn more. And so the people notice him, they recognize him, they, they make the connection that there's an incredible miracle that has occurred, and so they surround, um, they surround these three men. And so that's what's happening. That's where this sermon takes place. The man we saw last week is absolutely overjoyed. Okay, we, we saw that last week. He's leaping, he's running, and he's praising God. He is absolutely ecstatic about what has happened. I mean, when he, again, we talked last week about when he came to the temple that day, he had no idea that he would be healed. He had no clue. That was beyond what he could have hoped for that day. And yet that's exactly what Peter, through Christ, in the name of Christ, did for him, right? So God performed the miracle 
through the apostles. And so he's just completely blown away and ecstatic and in awe and just overjoyed. The man is clinging to Peter and John. I'm, I'm sure, again, he's thanking them and showing gratitude and trying to learn from them. And they're explaining uh, who Jesus is and, and what to do next and, and all of these things. And a crowd surrounds them at Solomon's portico. And, and you can see it there. So, um, first of all, uh, you have the crowd now. And what does Peter say? Okay, what, what does he say? When Peter saw it, meaning the crowd, he addressed the people. When Peter notices the crowd of people coming around, he says, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power? In other words, he's saying, this wasn't me. This was not us. We are not this powerful. We are not the source of this miracle. That's what he's saying. Don't look at us as though we're great. Don't look at us as though we can heal you. This was not done by our own power. This was, and, and he'll tell you here in a minute, this was done through the power of Jesus Christ. That's the only way it can be done. So, so he's saying, don't look at me. I'm not the one that did this. But then, next thing he's going to do, so uh, we have the man clinging, and uh, then Peter notices the crowd. He says, first of all, it wasn't me. It's, it's not my power. I can't, you know, it's not me. But immediately, he starts pointing to Jesus, okay? But instead of just immediately saying Jesus, what he's going to do is he's going to connect Jesus Christ, the one who had just been crucified, he's going to connect Jesus Christ with the Old Testament. Okay, remember where they are. This, this is, or that picture, you don't have to go back, that picture was uh, at that time, according to the people who were there, the holiest place on planet earth. That represented the presence of God, the God of heaven. Okay? And so what he's going to do, he's talking to people who are there to pray to God and to worship, worship God. And so he's going to connect Jesus Christ with the God of of the Old Testament. And he does it here in verse 13. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified this servant Jesus. So he's saying the God of heaven, the one God, the one that we all uh, adore, the one that we worship, the one who led our people out of, out of Egypt, the one who, who made a covenant with Abraham, that God glorified Jesus Christ. That God, the one, the one who we have the scriptures, the one who, who worked through the prophets and, and was so close with King David and the one who did all of these incredible things, the one that our fathers prayed to, that God exalted Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was exalted by the God that you're here to worship. That's what he's saying. Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified, the one who just, just a, you know, a month and a half or two months ago, the one that we screamed crucify him, the one that, that, that hung on a cross and was mocked, he was glorified by the God that you're here to worship. All right? And so he's making that connection between Jesus and God the Father. Okay? So um, next thing he's going to do is he's, he's going to move in, and he's going to say, essentially, Jesus' name was the source of the healing. Jesus, and what comes, what comes behind or what follows from his name was the source of the healing. Okay? And so, um, verse 12, he says, don't look at us, and then he makes the connection, and then as you move on, 
He says that you crucified him. Remember that? You crucified him. We talked about this during the last sermon of Peter. Is Our sins contributed to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 16, he says, And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of all of you. So the man is here with them. Remember, he's clinging to them. The crowd surrounds him. So Peter notices the crowd. And so he starts talking to the crowd. And he says, this man, right? It's a perfect picture. This man who this morning had to be carried to the temple is now in perfect health because of Jesus Christ. This man right here who's standing here and and was leaping, he went from being unable to walk today to having to being jumping and, and leaping for joy in the temple. This man is in perfect health because of Jesus, because of what Jesus has done. The faith that is through Jesus. So having established that Jesus has been exalted by God in, in light of his resurrection and and then now in his position to kind of give, uh, the, the, Holy Sp- give the Holy Spirit and then power, um, Peter asked his original question about power uh, behind the lame man's healing. It's, it's, from, it's from faith in his name. It's from faith in his name. And then what follows behind that name, the power that is available when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Now, one of the questions, one of the, one of the ways that I, I study Scripture is I, I just, I note all these questions as I read the Scripture, and um, I note all these questions that, that just come to mind as I'm reading it, right? This is one of the ways that I, that I study. And so, uh, studying this passage, um, one of the questions that, that I asked myself, and maybe you asked, but it's a question that needs to be answered, is whose faith? Okay, so it says, and his name, by faith in his name. Okay, who, whose faith? Who had the faith at this moment? Was it, was it the apostles who performed the miracle? Or was it the man who was healed? And to be honest with you, I think that I think that the scriptures leave that open deliberately. I think that they, that they intentionally leave it open because Peter worked by faith, didn't he? As when, Peter, when Peter tells the man to stand up, he has faith that the man is actually going to be able to stand, doesn't he? So he understands that God is working through him, and he has this faith that, that when Peter grabs the man and pulls him up, that he's actually going to be healed at that point, right? So Peter's faith is secure there, and, and um, how Peter knew is that's, a, that's a, a miracle in itself, but Peter understands what's about to happen, and he has faith that, that God is working through him and that that miracle is going to take place, right? So Peter has faith at this point, but also notice that, um, also notice that the man clung to the apostles. The man also at this point has faith. The man he goes through the miracle, and, and he's open, right? And he's healed, and then he clings to the apostles. He wants more of what the apostles can give, 
right? And so we talked about this last week. We said the world desperately needs what you can freely give, right? And so now today we're looking at this layman and this layman desperately wants what the apostles have. And so he got a little bit of it. He, he got the miracle and, and the ability to walk. And now uh, he has faith and now he's clinging to the apostles because he wants more. He wants more of Jesus. He wants to be closer to Jesus. He wants to hear more about Jesus. He wants to find out what he needs to do next. He wants more. This man's faith is increasing and Notice also that at the beginning here, it says the man is clinging to, to the, uh, clinging to Peter and John. And then verse 12, and when Peter saw it, talking about the crowd. In other words, Peter and John are talking with this guy. They're focused on the guy. And then Peter just happens to notice there's a big, huge crowd surrounding us. Right? So what, what I gather, now the scripture doesn't make it perfectly clear, but what I gather is that the, the apostles here are investing in this man. They're telling him, they're explaining to him who Jesus is, what he taught, and, and where to go next, what to do next. I, but I think, that, I think that the Scripture leaves that open on whose faith because it's emphasizing faith alone rather than the possessor of that faith. Because neither one, whether, whether it be Peter, John, or the lame man, should be exalted in this situation, right? In fact, Peter comes out and says it. Don't exalt me. Actually, I don't think he exact, says those exact words, but that's his meaning, right? It's not me. It's not me. Why do you wonder at this? It's not the man either. It's faith in Jesus. It's faith in Jesus Christ and what can come after that. Now, following this, he's going to break the sermon up into a couple of things. The first thing he's going to talk about is repentance, and then he's going to give some support for his claims, okay? And so what we saw here, we see uh, what's happening at the beginning. We see that you are guilty for Jesus' death, okay? And he tells the Jews this, and that, that message is to you and me as well. Um, the sins that we commit contribute to the death and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. We talked about that in Peter's first sermon. But even though God, God glorified Jesus, the Jews did the opposite, right? They conspired to have him killed. We see that in, in the second part of 13. So they wanted him dead. And Luke 23 really gives a clear picture. We're not going to go there right now, but Luke 23 gives a clear picture of what happened, okay? And so uh, Pilate attempted to release Jesus three times. Each time uh, he's, he meets opposition by the Jews. And so here Pilate is said to have decided to let him go, uh, both here and in, in Luke. Pilate was essentially a witness to the guilt of the Jews in Jerusalem of their day. But don't, don't misunderstand me. Pilate was not a good guy. Pilate is not just an innocent bystander in this, right? Pilate's a monster. He is. Pilate is a man who... Um, who had a man that he knew to be innocent tortured and killed, right? And so he knew Jesus Christ was innocent, and he said, you know what, crucify him anyway. What do I care, right? So Pilate's not a good guy, but what Pilate is doing is Pilate is a witness to the hatred that the Jews of his day had towards Jesus, okay? They, they absolutely hated him. And so then the Jews, uh, they, they request Barabbas, uh, who really was a murderer, really was a bad guy. He's an evil person. 
and, and they request Barabbas to be released so that Jesus could then be crucified. Now, it's incredibly, I don't know if ironic is the right word. It's sad, but it's ironic that the Jews demanded a murderer to be released to them so that they themselves could murder the author of life. They, they insisted Barabbas be released so that they could complete their plan to murder Jesus. It's, it's terrible, isn't it? It's terrible, but in, in a way, it's ironic. The cross, they thought, would lead to defeat of Jesus, but in actuality, it, it was a victory because God raised him from the dead. Peter and John, again, they're saying, hey, we saw him. We talked to him. We learned from him. He taught from us. He invested in us after he rose from the dead. So I'm not just making this claim that I, I heard a rumor that he rose from the dead, but I saw him and I talked to him. He was dead and then he was alive, right? And, and that's, that's what they're saying. So they're witnesses and then the guilt of of the Jews of his day is, is essentially established. But we have to note, again, we don't get to point at the Jews and say, you killed the Messiah. We don't get to point at the Jews and say, you killed Jesus, because we've already learned that we killed Jesus. We contributed to his death. When we involve ourselves in the filth of sin, we contribute to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. We don't get to point to the Jews and say, you did it. This is on you. We did it. We all did it because we all sin. Okay? So, they're guilty of delivering God's uh, exalted one, God's chosen one to death. And, and in, in their denial of Jesus, Peter continues to emphasize um, their denial in the, in the remainder of his sermon. God sent Jesus to bless them, right? To bless his chosen ones. But they refuse him. They hate him. They reject him. And they kill him. In verses 14 and 15, there's three terms that are applied to Christ. 14 and 15 calls Jesus the Holy One, the Righteous One, and the Author of Life. The Holy One is a title in the Old Testament. It's applied to Elisha, and it's also applied to Aaron. In the New Testament, it, it appears only as a designation for Jesus Christ, right? No one else gets that name. Now, there's, some, um, there's also the righteous one. Uh, there's some evidence of uh, messianic use for that before Christianity. It's used primarily uh, in the time frame between the Old Testament and the New Testament, okay? So very rarely is it used in the Old Testament itself, but it's used quite a bit in what's called the Apocrypha, which uh, are not inspired books of, of the Bible, but um, you can look at them as kind of history, and, and so they're ancient books too. Um, but um, it's, it's used to describe the coming Messiah, right? And then the author of life. It, this term is only used four times. It's used here. It's used in Acts 5, and it, then it's used twice in the book of Hebrews. And the word has two meanings, okay? It means leader or pioneer, uh, but it also means uh, author or originator. So this passage, any of those things could apply. Christ is either the author, the originator, and source of life, or he's, he's the, the leader in the resurrection life, the firstborn, right? The term is not messianic, but it's a summary of the work of Christ. 
context that deals with the resurrection because we said a couple of weeks ago you cannot separate the works of Christ and the teachings of Christ, okay? So now, uh, he's laid this out. He's talked about it. Uh, he's, Jesus is the exalted one. He's, he's the one that, was, uh, that the, prophesies were telling, or the prophecies were telling about. He's the one that, our, that their fathers were waiting for. But they killed him, right? They killed him, and he, did, he, he has died, but then uh, he rose again. Now, he's going to hit on the response, okay? The response, and this comes in 17 to 19. And the first thing is to repent. 17. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out. Now, usually when we talk today, when we say repent, what we're talking about is specifically sins. Okay? Repent from your sins. Or if, if you're caught in a sin, repent from this. Okay? Usually when we talk about repenting, we're talking specifically about sins. And it usually involves, you know, feeling bad about sins and, and wanting to end a, a sinful behavior, right? And that's certainly a part of repentance. Don't hear me wrong. Re dealing with sins and getting away from sinful behavior is a part of repentance, but it's not all of repentance. Because when, when we approach it this way, when I say repent, we begin with sin. We begin with sin so then we can get to God. But it's backwards. Repentance isn't about sins, at least not at first. Repentance is about God. It's, it's about how you approach God. If you're approaching God correctly and you're worshiping Him the way He expects to be worshiped, then sin will not be in your life. So repentance literally means, uh, the Greek word that, that they use for repentance literally means to change one's mind specifically about God. Change one's mind specifically about God. So in repentance, it begins with God. You cannot turn from your sins in order to please God. If you do not have God first, you do not have the power or the ability to turn from your sins. You cannot please God if you have no faith in God. You cannot please God if you reject His Son. If you don't, if you don't truly look at God appropriately, the way that He wants to be viewed, if you don't have Him, if, you're not, if you don't have faith in Him, then you cannot defeat sin. You can't do it. So, repentance begins with God, and then it deals with the sinful behavior. So, one must be pursuing God before any kind of sin eradication will take place. All right, we have to understand that. In Acts 20, and we're, we're going to look at this, Acts 20, Paul characterized his ministry in Ephesus as one of testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so when he's saying repent, he's saying, look at God, look at him, change your mind, change how you think about him and, and, change, and, and look at him the way that he wants to be looked at, worship him the way he wants to be worshiped. 
When he's defending himself before Agrippa, Paul says in Acts 26, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds and keeping with their repentance. Right? So he's saying, repent, view God appropriately, view God for who he really is, not, who for, not for who you think he might be, but then as a result of your view of God, your appropriate view of God, then your behavior and your deeds and your works fall into line with that belief system, with that faith. Okay? So Peter calls his listeners, remember who he's talking to, he's here in the temple and he's in Solomon's portico, he calls his listeners to repent because they had rejected the one who was, who was supposed to come from the Old Testament. They had rejected the one that God had been telling them about for hundreds of years, thousands of years. The one that their forefathers had been waiting for, the one that the prophets had been talking about. When they rejected Jesus, they rejected God. Right? You have to understand that. If you reject Jesus Christ, you reject God. You cannot worship God the Father if you reject Jesus Christ. You, it, you cannot do it, okay? And so um, they needed to change their view of God, which would then bring about the Holy Spirit, which then would address the sin in their lives, right? And so uh, in order to get to God the Father, they had to go through the Son, and then the Spirit comes, and then sin is dealt with in their life, okay? You cannot worship God the Father if you reject God the Son. Let's make that clear now. A side note to this, this is this idea, or this fact, that you can't worship God the Father without worshiping God the Son, or if you reject God the Son, if you reject God the Son, you reject God the Father. This fact is why it's crazy when people claim that Christians and Muslims worship the same God, all right? So rejecting Jesus as God is rejecting God. You cannot reject God the Son and still worship God the Father. Jesus tells us this in John 8, and anyone who tells you otherwise isn't necessarily contradicting Joe, but contradicting Jesus himself. Okay, so that's a side note. Rejecting God the Son is rejecting God. Okay, God the Father. There's, there's no way to God except through Jesus Christ. Now, now that we talked about repentance, the next thing is Return to obedience to God. Repentance deals, uh, it does deal with sinfulness, but first it's correcting your view concerning God. Once that is accomplished, then the sinfulness is addressed because uh, if you view God correctly, you'll notice your own sin and it will be repulsive. If you're devoted to the true, holy, uh, Trinitarian God, your sin will have a stench, and you'll notice its filth in your life, and you'll want nothing to do with it. We've used this illustration um, before, where uh, sin in your life is like a, a bride walking into her wedding, but first she walks through a bunch of horse manure, right? She might have a beautiful dress on, it might be a great celebration, but once she walks through that manure, it ruins everything, right? That's like sin in our lives. It, it, you, we have to deal with it, but first we, have to, uh, first we have to look to God. We have to look to Him appropriately. So the second part of repentance is going back to obedience, 
We should never confuse, by the way, repentance for regret, right? So we should never confuse repenting from sin and regretting a sin that we we committed. Jesus, or not Jesus, Judas, big difference, Judas, not Jesus, regretted his sin, but he never repented. So now what? Now what? Now now he told us to repent. He told us to to fall back in line, to to obey. The next thing he's going to tell us, he's going to back up his support in verses 20 to 26. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who have come after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. He's saying, be refreshed now. In Jesus Christ, be refreshed. But notice what 19 says. Once you view God appropriately, once you you accept the Son, your sins may be blotted out. Your sins are no more. Your sins may be blotted out, and he closes it addressing their wickedness or acknowledging their wickedness. So this wickedness that he, that he acknowledges here at the end of the chapter can be blotted out once they repent, once they view God correctly through Jesus Christ. This would have pointed directly towards Psalm 51, verse 9, when David was responding to his affair with Bathsheba. Just like all works-based righteousness uh, and the legalism of first century Judaism, and and to be honest, that of modern Christianity, served only to just to throw weight on the shoulders of men. The beauty of our God is that he provided for us what we could never attain on our own. He gave it to us. He even promised to forget our sins. That's Isaiah 43. Once we believe the gospel and accept Jesus as God, the one who came to deal with our sins, we are driven to seek forgiveness for the sins in our lives. And the beautiful part about our God, one of the beautiful things of our God and the beautiful part of our faith is that God actually forgives us. We don't deserve it, but he does it. God forgives us. He doesn't just forgive us, though. He restores us. There's only one way to receive this forgiveness, and that's through faith in Jesus Christ. And Peter claims this to the Sanhedrin in Acts 5. He says, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Acts 10 tells us it is through his name that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. 
Paul writes in Ephesians 1. We're going we're gonna to bounce through and just show a bunch of evidence. Paul writes in, um, in Ephesians 1. He says, in him, it's talking about Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And then in Ephesians 4, he says, God in Christ has forgiven you. Forgiveness is available even to the wicked men and women who were screaming, crucify him. He did something that the old covenant, that the Old Testament law could never do and was never designed to do. Bring forgiveness of sins. We know that Hebrews 10 tells us it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But that's what the blood of Jesus was intended to do. That's why he came. We have to remember, those of you who think you're too far gone to be saved, or those of you who think that your life that was just full of absolute wickedness in the past is too much to be saved, or you think your life is too much for God to redeem, I want you to think of this. I want you to be reminded that God saved first the very people who rejected and murdered Jesus. The very people who were screaming crucify him, the very people who were spitting on him, the ones that were mocking him while he's on the cross, the ones that are taking turns whipping him and hitting him and humiliating him. Those are the ones who heard the message of the gospel first. When Jesus in, in Acts 1.8, when he's giving the great commission, Jesus did not say, get out of Jerusalem, these, wait until this generation dies off. That's not what he said. He said, stay here. Stay here. Begin here and then move out. Jesus commanded them to bring the message of forgiveness, to bring the gospel to the very people who hated him the most. The ones who whipped him. The ones who nailed him to the cross. The ones who, who made the plot. They're the ones who heard the message first, and that was intentional. If he can forgive the ones who screamed crucify him, the ones who ripped, ripped the beard off of his face, if he can forgive them, I promise you, he can forgive you. I don't care what it is that you have ever done in your life. I don't care what it is that you have ever thought. I don't care what has ever been done to you. Through Jesus Christ, you can find forgiveness, but you can only find it in him. You will find it in nowhere else. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for today. And, and God, I, I thank you for, I thank you for your forgiveness. And God, I pray that, um, I pray that we would be a church that, that loves you and that worships, that worships you first and foremost, but we also would be a church that loves one another and loves our city. God, I pray that people would know that in Jesus Christ, forgiveness is available because of what you're doing through this church, because of the way that you're speaking through this church. Father, I, I, I know that there are people in here who... Um, who have some terrible sins in their lives, who have, who have done some terrible things, and they, they have this, this heavy guilt and this heavy burden because they think that they have to deal with it on their own. God, I pray that, 
you would remind them that you bring forgiveness, that Jesus came to die to bring forgiveness, to bring salvation from sins. God, I pray that if there is no one in here today who understands that, no one who has accepted Jesus, no one who has believed the gospel, I pray that you would reveal that to them. And I pray that you would lead them over to the prayer wall where they can talk to an elder or they can talk to me and we can open up the scriptures and we can, we can talk about how wonderful and perfect Jesus Christ is. Father, we worship you because you're absolutely worthy of it. Not because of the blessings that you bring, but because you're God and you deserve worship. And God, we thank you so much that you also are a forgiving God. You're a gracious God and you're a loving God. Without those things, we wouldn't even have the right to bow before you in prayer. Father, we love you, we praise you, and we worship you. And we pray these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you.